This is TSC Now, a podcast from the TSC Alliance. Hello, and welcome to TSC Now. I'm your host, Dan Klein. International Epilepsy Day is held annually on the second Monday of February. So this year, International Epilepsy Day falls on February 13th. It also marks the kickoff of Seizure Action Plan Awareness Week, an effort to educate patients, healthcare providers, and the general public about the importance of seizure action plans, which contain tailored instructions on how to respond during a seizure based on a specific individual's medical history. In honor of these two important awareness initiatives, I wanted to focus this month's episode on on seizure clusters, which are episodes of frequent seizure activity that are distinct from a person's usual seizure pattern. Seizure clusters may also be called acute repetitive seizures, serial seizures, crescendo seizures, or seizure flurries. And in every case, they are an emergency that often require rescue medication, calling for emergency response, or both. These clusters may limit someone's ability to work or study and interferes with their daily activities, family, and social life. To learn more about seizure clusters, I talked to Dr. James Wheelis of Le Bonheur Children's Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Here's my conversation with Dr. Wheelis. So I'm now joined by Dr. Jim Wheelis. Dr. Wheelis is the Director of Neuroscience Institute and Comprehensive Epilepsy Program at Lavonor Children's Hospital. He's also the co-director of the Tuber Sclerosis Center of Excellence at Lavonor. Dr. Wheelis, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me today. Yeah, glad to do it, Dan. Thanks for uh, having me be part of this. So I wanted to talk to you specifically because we're coming up on Seizure Action Plan Awareness Week and International Epilepsy Day, and I really wanted to dive deep on seizure clusters. So to provide provide a foundation for people. What are seizure clusters? So folks can have their typical seizures. And obviously, we hope always that those are fully controlled, but we know that doesn't happen in every patient. They occasionally may have their regular seizure, and that's worrisome enough. But when they start to have a seizure that's worse than their typical seizure, and that worse can be usually in a couple of ways. So usually it's more frequent. So they may just have one seizure every week, couple of weeks, a month. They have a day with two, three seizures. We start to say, uh-oh, this is something out of the ordinary. Often parents can tell us on those bad days that the seizures are worse themselves too. The first one may start off typical, but then the second one's stronger, longer, harder. The recovery is not as quick. Families usually get a quick sense that this is different. We don't usually have this. And they'll tell us that. They'll say, you know, this is not what we normally do. We normally have one. We recover in this much time. We're back to our normal self. When parents notice this irregular activity from their normal seizure activity, what should they be concerned about in terms of short-term and long-term effects of these clusters of seizures? So I think, as you might guess, I mean, once the seizure is basically worse in some way from the typical one, so more frequent, multiple a day, longer, slower recovery. Caregivers, loved ones appropriately panic or get worried, right? I mean, you would, I would. It's like something's going on here that's it's not good, right? It's not the direction we want this to be going. So historically, the problem we've had is when seizures repeat like that, we really didn't have good options. It was like, okay, if you think it's bad enough at some point, just go to the local emergency department and hopefully they'll have a strategy to deal with it. But we really didn't have great options for families to be able to do at home. 
And just so that parents are aware, what are some other terms in the medical community for seizure clusters that they might come across as they're trying to get answers? Yeah, I think the having terminology we all agree on is helpful because just like anything else, if you tell me you're having a heart attack, that gets me thinking, you know, in one way and, I, and certain thoughts go through your head as far as how I have to deal with it. And if I know the seizures are worse, that the parents know we're using the same language, then we at least are all thinking, okay, we've got to be heading down the same path for treating this. It's typically called seizure cluster, but I think what works better with families or a term that means more to them is seizures that repeat that repeat term close together or repeat in the course of a day. So again, if they normally have one, even if they're spaced out every couple hours, if they have three, four, six that day, that's not their normal day. So I think that repeat, a term that's used sometimes by medical personnel is acute repetitive seizures or ARS, but I don't think that really resonates with families. The idea of them grouping together, repeating is really, I think, what I would focus on from the family standpoint. And so when parents notice these repeat seizures, something that's outside of the normal scope of what they're child's regular seizure activity is, what should they do? You know, a couple things always come to mind and, and people always say, gosh, why do we need to have to do something urgently about these? And, and we know that these different seizures can have more serious consequences even than their regular seizures. So they can make folks more prone to injuries during the seizures. And that can vary all the way from just falling down and, you know, minor scrapes and abrasions to breaking a bone, knocking a tooth out, you know, more serious injuries potentially can even progress uh, occasionally in some folks to where they're having back-to-back non-stop seizures, which is a medical emergency that we call status epilepticus. And, and we know that has potential for serious medical consequences. So these are different and they have different kind of risk that don't all overlap with their typical seizure. So then what treatments are available to kind of stop that clustering yeah. and stop those seizures? Yeah. So the challenge we've always had is, you know, patients take their regular medicine day in and day out to stop their normal seizures from happening. If they start to have this cluster, what we've struggled with in kind of neurology is what could they kind of use on top of their regular medicine, just intermittently, only when they need it for these kind of upticks in their seizure frequency, their seizure control is not as good. Asthma, for example, has had great options. So if someone has bad asthma, they may have regular medicine they take, but then if it gets worse because it's seasonal or they go somewhere where they're more allergic to something, they have inhalers they can use, right? So they have a strategy at home to deal with it. So finally, we have a strategy in neurology. We have agents that can be given that are just simple agents. They're not inhalers like asthma. They're a nose spray type item. They're given in the nose, but they're a single spray. And that's convenience. Us finally having products that have shown that they work to interrupt the cluster. They're easy to carry. They're safe. Has really allowed us to change how we think about treating our patients with epilepsy now. So for our typical patient, we still say, okay, you need to be on kind of your maintenance treatment to keep you from having seizures. But if something happens that you have this cluster where your seizures repeat, you should have an emergency treatment you can use on top of that to get things knocked back down and deal with it yourself. And that provides you know, obviously huge peace of mind to family members, whether it's parents, spouse, but just to know there's something they can do and they're not just kind of helpless and just hoping this doesn't happen ever. And how has the availability of these rescue medications impacted the need for families to call 911 when their kid yeah. is having a seizure? And when is it still appropriate for them to make that call? I think the availability of the nose spray options to treat seizure emergencies has really 
created kind of a paradigm shift in how we treat epilepsy. Like I said, now we have the easy availability of giving these to almost all of our patients, literally, so they have an option to do at home. If they have a cluster, we still would recommend they do that. The cluster should stop with treatment within the course of a couple of minutes. If it doesn't stop, they should still call 911. If it stops, but there's a medical trigger that requires them to call an ambulance, they still should call. So we don't tell folks this totally replaces the need to ever go to the emergency department, but what we find is for most of our patients, well over 90% of the time, this does eliminate it because the seizure stopped, their loved one's safe, they can tell they're breathing normally, their color's good, they're recovering from the seizure, and they're much happier being at home than sitting in an emergency room waiting for hours and hours to get testing done that they may or may not even need. And you talked about ease of use of these rescue medications, but how else are they different from the general maintenance medications that people use to control their epilepsy? Yeah, great point. I mean, these medicines work well at what they're supposed to do, which is stopping the cluster, but they can't be given every day to prevent you from ever having a seizure, if you will. They, they Then they will stop working if that happens. So we know that these are just used to treat the emergencies. They work great for that, but they're not meant to replace regular treatment. They're meant to be kind of a backup, if you will, to use if needed, if a seizure occurs and a cluster occurs even on regular treatment. So moving back to our understanding of seizure clusters, do physicians, researchers, do we know why why seizure clusters occur or what brings them on? Yeah, so for some patients, we can identify what I would call triggers for their seizure clusters. And some of these are ones that might seem kind of obvious. So we, for example, we know in young kids that the flu virus is a real common trigger more than other typical colds. There's something about the flu that can make preschool age children much more prone to clusters, not so much in older kids or adults. For some individual patients, they may tell us. So some rare female patients, for example, may say, you know what, if I have a cluster, it's always at the beginning of my menstrual cycle. I may not have one then, but if I do, it's always time with it. It's that hormonal change that kind of triggers it. So some of our patients can identify triggers, which is great because then if they know that they've had a trigger and literally as soon as the seizure occurs, they could say, okay, I'm jumping in and shut it down with my rescue therapy. For other of our patients, they say, you know what? I was taking my medicine. You know, I got up the same time of day. There was, I was feeling good. There was no change. It just happened. And we know there are many of our patients that really don't have a trigger and those, you know, it's frustrating, but that's why those folks need rescue too, because we can't predict, we can't tell them, you know, when you might need it could hit any day. And having an agent you can have with you that's easy to carry then is really critical for those folks. So they do have it with them when the event happens. And so for those folks where you can't necessarily identify the trigger and just generally, what do you consider sort of the unanswered questions about our understanding of seizure clusters? So we wonder in those folks, and, and as we look at kind of use our artificial intelligence and kind of other ways to kind of help us look at big pieces of information here, if we look at patterns over time in those patients with their seizures, is it tied into another clock that's not necessarily a 24-hour day? So in other words, every two months, every two and a half months, is there something in there unique to their own body rhythm that you know makes them more prone You know these times, which seem to be spread out without a clear reason to the clusters. And the main reason for trying to figure that out is, does that then allow us to predict when one might occur? So the patients, again, they would just know to be more vigilant to kind of 
jump in earlier with, with treatment. So we still have a, a lot of work, I think, to do on that, but uh, there certainly is a lot of attention being paid to, can we figure out a marker for that to help our patients? So going back to the parent or caregiver or, or the individual experiencing the seizure clusters, beyond having that rescue medication available, understanding how to use it, how else can they prepare for a seizure cluster? Yeah, I think the key is to have what we call a seizure action plan, but basically it's like any emergency. I mean, if I told you, you know, you were going to get, you know, a bad snowstorm or a flood in two weeks, you might think, oh, there's certain things I need to do at home or whatever, right? So like all of us, having a plan helps. And if we know that this is a high likelihood of occurring, you know, having a plan and the, the plan's usually pretty straightforward. It usually has, okay, what are your regular medicines? Let's make sure we know when we're taking those. And then for every patient, because they're going to be different, at what point do we jump in and treat them with their seizure cluster? What's the medicine we're using? What's the dose? How is that given? And then what's the expected response to that and recovery so that it's very clear whether it's the family member, it's the grandmother that's watching the patient, if it's a relative, a friend, a babysitter, that everybody's on the same page. And then from the doctor's standpoint, the critical thing is when I see that family back, did, did the plan work? Because it's great to have a plan. But if we if we do that, I see it back and they go, gosh, it didn't make any difference. Then, you know, we've got to fix the plan. That's not a very good plan, right? So part of it is, yes, having a plan. So we go in up front, we can, you know, be the best prepared. And then two is reviewing it. If it worked, then it's great. Then we say, listen, we've got it. Just stick with this. This is working wonderfully. And if it worked pretty good, but not as good as we like, I mean, there are tweaks we can do to it. But I think that's critical because this is clearly tailored to the individual patient. And that's a key point. Not every patient's going to be the same for their plan. We have to fit it to the patient. And once you have a plan in place that works for that individual patient, who all needs to be educated on that plan? Who all needs to be involved in the development of it? Yeah, I would say, I mean, obviously the, the key family members are going to be, whether it's, you know, parents, uh, spouse, but as we get it developed and it's working, then I would say it's everybody that's around that patient that has epilepsy. So if it's their school, it's, you know, the school people need to know, they're at after school care, if it's grandparents, you know, it's, it's whoever is going to be around that patient. If it's their spouse, whoever is going to be like around them when they may need to do it. And I think the thing that we have to keep in mind is, you know, the plan is something that we want for kind of everyday use. It's not just for, oh, you know, you're going to go on a vacation across country to see grandma, you need a plan. No, no, no. Even if you're at the grocery store, it can happen. We, we The plan is not for, you know, just kind of big events. It's for everyday use and everybody that's around that person needs to kind of be aware of it and, and be comfortable with it. Just to kind of wrap up this conversation, when a parent starts noticing this abnormal seizure activity, what advice would you give them? How should they go about putting a plan together? How should they go about getting answers and, and getting that peace of mind? Yeah, so I think many parents and we talk to, and it's interesting, they, you know, they have rescue, but they're almost kind of hesitant to use it. Hesitant sometimes to pull the trigger, if you will, up front. Is this the right time? Do we need to wait to see we have another seizure or a third seizure? Our rescue therapies work better the earlier on in that cluster we use them. So, you know, we usually talk to families and if they say, you know what, we almost never have more than one seizure in a day, then say, okay, you know what, if you have a day with two, then if I'm you, I'm probably using it. Because even if by chance you were going to stop it two and not go on to three, and maybe you didn't need the rescue, if I give it, most people that get rescued within an hour back to their normal self and many way before that. So if I'm right and you needed it, I've given it early on, it's going to work better. And the worst case scenario is if you maybe didn't need it that time, you may take a short 
happy, tired, but it's not the end of the world. And I'd rather err on the side of treatment to prevent kind of the multiple seizures and the complications because of that. And I think that's one of the key things for families to be aware of. And, you know, they're there at the time it's happening. It's easier for me kind of after the fact to be kind of a Monday morning quarterback. But when you're there live and it's happening in front of you, it's a tougher. And I think uh, they've got to be comfortable making that call that, you know, I gave it and it was it was OK. Well, I appreciate your expertise on the subject and I appreciate all the work you've done to help educate families about epilepsy in general and specifically about rescue medications and seizure clusters. Well, thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. I hope it's helpful for families. And if they don't have kind of a plan for what to do, I would just encourage them to follow up with their neurologist, figure out a plan that works for them that they feel comfortable with. My thanks again to Dr. Willis for sharing his knowledge on seizure clusters and rescue medications. To learn more about creating a seizure action plan and to get involved in Seizure Action Plan Awareness Week, please visit seizureactionplans.org. Thank you so much for listening to this episode and for helping to spread awareness about the importance of seizure action plans. I will see you next time. Thank you for listening to TSC Now. Our theme song is Take Charge by Young Presidents. Listen to all our episodes and subscribe to the podcast now at tscalliance.org slash tscnow. See you next time.